Our passage this morning is Exodus 15, beginning at verse 22, and you see the passage printed there in your bulletin. Once again, let me welcome you to Cornerstone, especially if you're visiting with us this morning. We're beginning, um, or we're jumping back into a series that we started earlier in the year. We took a break in July to look at different psalms together, but we're diving back in this morning right where we left off, and we're picking up with the people of Israel just having made it to the other side of the Red Sea. Um, They are finally out of Egypt, out of, after 14 long chapters dealing with God, delivering His people and fulfilling His promise to save them and to bring them out of slavery and and towards the promised land, just like He promised that He would. So we're picking up our story right there on the banks of the Red Sea. And remember, this is a Red Sea that God has just split open in half so that his people could walk through it and escape from Pharaoh's army. Um, God made a highway where there was not supposed to be a highway. He made a highway through the water, and then he turned that highway into a graveyard filled with Egyptian soldiers, the Red Sea. This was truly a mountaintop kind of experience for the people of Israel. Um, They get to the other side. And they've just escaped literally by the skin of their teeth. And they're all alive. They all made it. And none of Pharaoh's army made it. And they respond in the only way that's appropriate, the only way they know how. They just burst into song, right? Um, Exodus 15, the the chapter that's just before our, our passage this morning, it's 21 verses of the song of Moses and the song of the people that they sing as they... As they stand there on the banks of the Red Sea, reveling in and marveling in the goodness and strength and power and glory and goodness of the God that has just saved them. It really was a mountaintop kind of experience. And so we wouldn't blame them, would we, if they're thinking at this point, okay, this may not be so bad after all. If God can do that... We're going to get to Canaan in no time. Like, this might even be easy. Um, He's ahead of us in a pillar of fire and smoke. He knows the way. He's going to clear every obstacle in front of us. The God that can do that can bring us to the promised land in no time. Let's dry our shoes off and get going. This might even be easier than we thought. We wouldn't blame them if we're thinking that. And our passage this morning, though, is three days after that mountaintop experience, three days later, and their journey in the wilderness is not going at all like they thought it was going to. Just three days later, that mountaintop experience is a distant, irrelevant memory to them because now it's hot and it's dry, they're in the middle of nowhere, and it's dangerous, and they're in a desperate and disappointing situation. And maybe you know what that's like. Maybe you know what it's like to think that following Jesus in the life that he's called you to live, that following God in this world, maybe you know what it's like to think that it's going to look a certain way. Maybe based on prior experience, maybe based on some kind of previous mountaintop experience, maybe based on other people's experiences, how they told you it was going to look like, or how other people's Christian life seems to look. Or maybe based on what you read in Scripture and the promises that you see God making to His people, 
Maybe you look at at any of that and you think that following Jesus in this life should look a certain way, and then you follow him straight into a situation or a circumstance that's difficult and painful and confusing, and the journey doesn't look at all like you thought it was going to. What does Israel learn, and what do we have to learn here as God leads them straight into and out of a bitter situation? Let's read and find out. Exodus chapter 15, beginning verse 22. This is God's word. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians." For I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand together. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray now that you would send your spirit so that we might have eyes to see and ears to hear Jesus, help us to love him and trust him more as we see you at work here in this portion of the gospel. And we pray that, Lord Jesus, in your name, amen. So we're going to open this passage up this morning under two two headings, two points. The first is going to be a little bit longer than the second, but here we go. The first point I want to open up uh, our, our passage with under is this. I want you to see the test that God gives, the test that God gives. Let's dive straight in. I want you to notice that in verse 25, we're told that God tested them at Marah, that that's what he's doing here. He tested them at Marah. This little detail, it helps us to understand that Israel didn't make a wrong turn in the desert. They didn't stumble into this situation by accident. They didn't arrive at these bitter springs at Marah by mistake. No, God brought them here to test them. And verse 1 clues us into that as well. It says that Moses made them set out from the Red Sea. So they're following Moses. He's the one that made them set out, is charting the course, but Moses is following God, right? Because there's God in the pillar of cloud and, and smoke or cloud and fire ahead of them, They're following Moses as Moses is following God. God is the trail guide. He's up front. And God plugs this address into his GPS system and leads them straight here over the course of three days. I want you to just stop and think about that for a second. God is the one that brings them here. God is the one that introduces this into their lives. They probably feel like something has gone terribly wrong. Like God's travel plans for their journey have gone way off the rails. But if they could have seen God's GPS screen that he's looking at, 
they would have seen that nothing's gone wrong. And his travel itinerary is still very much on the rails. They're not late, they're not off course, and they're not lost. They've arrived precisely where and when God intends for them to arrive, at Mara, with no water. And this reminds us, doesn't it, that God is he's the Lord over all of our lives. He's sovereign and in control, and He reigns over every stage of the journey as we follow Him in this world. He reigns over those places where it's really easy and where it's really hard. In the language of Psalm 23, He's the shepherd that leads us not only in green pastures, by still waters, but also in the valley of the shadow of death. And it's really easy, though, to think that those valleys, that those dark places, that those are the places where God's absent or where it's gone off the rails and where maybe He's lost control and He's not at work. But God's Word reminds us here as well as throughout, even as the lights go off and this becomes a dark place, um, that He's at work in those dark places. That those valleys are the places where he is intensely present and in control and always at work. He is the one that leads them to Mara where there's no water. Why? Well, to give them a test. This word test here, this is the idea of, of uncovering something that's covered up. The idea of, of revealing something that's hidden, of exposing what's there and bringing it into the light of bringing out what's hidden so that it can be seen. That's what this test involves. He wants to bring out what's actually been there the whole time, but that's just been hidden from view. And it's really important for us to notice the timing of this testing. When God tests Israel and when this test occurs in the bigger story of the picture or the the bigger picture of the book of Exodus, notice we're 15 chapters into this thing. We're 15 chapters in, and God has already brought, brought Israel out of Egypt. They're already on the way to the promised land and on the other side of the Red Sea before God tests them. This is not how you and I normally make the big decisions, the big, the big decisions about those big purchases in our lives, you know. You know, if I'm going to buy a car, if I'm going to write that check, I'm going to go test that car out as much as I can. I'm going, to, I'm going to kick the tires. I'm going to test drive it. I'm going to drive it over all of the rough places to see if the shocks are still work. I'm going to test it out for all it's worth to see if it's worth committing to, right? If I'm going to purchase a home, I'm going to, I'm going to go find the most picky uh, home inspector that I can possibly find, the guy that can, that can comb it over with a fine-tooth comb to see anything that's there that's a problem. I'm going to test it out first to see what I'm getting myself into before I commit to it. But notice, that's not how God operates here. You would think that God would test Israel way back at the beginning, way back in the early chapters of Exodus, so that he knows what he's getting into before he commits to saving them. But he doesn't do that. (laughs) Instead, he saves them first. He brings them out, and then he tests them. After they've already been brought out of Egypt and on the other side of the Red Sea, and this clues us into what he's doing and how God always operates, doesn't it? (laughs) He saves them first in order to reveal something to them. 
He doesn't test them in order for him to discover something that he doesn't already know about them. He doesn't test them here to decide if they're worth committing to. No, he's giving them a test to reveal something to them. Not so that he can learn new information about them. This test, God is testing them. This testing is more about God uncovering and revealing to Israel something about Israel. God already knows. He already sees them. He knows who he's bringing out of Egypt. But he knows that the people that he's bringing out of Egypt, they don't know themselves. And that means that they don't know him fully yet either. Because if they have a false view of who they are and of their commitment to God, a false view of their faithfulness, they also have a false and a lesser view of God's own faithfulness to them. It reminds me of when I was in high school. This was 10th or 11th grade, maybe. This was a few weeks into the fall before our, our fall basketball tryouts. And a new kid transfers to our little small private school down in South Mississippi, and let's just call him Billy, okay? Um, and Billy, he transferred in just a few weeks before basketball tryouts, and Billy comes in talking a big game about how good he is at basketball. And our small little, little team, we're thinking, okay, this could be our year. Billy sounds like Michael Jordan. We made it to South State last year. Maybe this is our year to go to state riding Billy's coattails. This could be it. We started very quickly thinking about state tournament. Here we come because we've got Billy. This is going to be awesome. Well, tryouts come around, and none of us have ever seen Billy in action before. None of us had ever seen him play. And that first tryout practice round, we all thought Billy was just kidding around, just joking around. He couldn't make a layup. He couldn't dribble with his left hand. Some very basic basketball stuff that Billy didn't know how to do that we all thought he was kidding around, but we very quickly realized that he wasn't because Billy had never played organized basketball before. He had only played basketball in his driveway. And y'all, when you're in your driveway by yourself, you're LeBron James, right? Like, it's, that's easy. You're good when it's just you and you're just in your driveway, but Billy had never been tested before. He didn't know himself, and it took that painful experience of being tested for him to understand himself and for everyone else too as well. And in the same way, it's very possible that the people of Israel here, they're thinking to themselves, if following God to the promised land is like following him through the Red Sea. This is going to be easy. I can do that. I can follow God in those moments when it's big and obvious and loud that he's got me. Obeying and trusting and living by faith, not by sight. At the Red Sea, I can do that. We've got this. But God knows that he's, he, he knows the people that he's bringing out of Egypt. He knows that they don't know themselves. And that means that they don't know God to the full extent that he wants them to know him. And so he leads them straight to Marah. And Marah, what is Marah? It's the exact opposite of the Red Sea, right? 
There it was so obvious that God was for them and with them. But here, here it's not so obvious. Here's their situation. They've been traveling for three days in the hot, dry desert. And this is really serious. I mean, think about it. There are hundreds of thousands of people there. Young children, elderly people, flocks and herds. And there's no water anywhere around. Just a few weeks ago, we took our high school students down to RYM Summer Conference down in Panama City. A thousand students from all over PCA churches in the, in the southeast. And on day three, on Wednesday, the water main to the campus broke. And there was no running water for most of the campus. And y'all, within like one hour, the RYM people had gone and bought every gallon of water within 50 miles of of the campus, okay? Within one hour, all of the girls at the campus were going and running and getting their shampoo and conditioner and washing their hair in the pools because they wanted to beat the other girls there who were going to be doing the same thing. Everybody freaked out because there was no running water. What are we going to do? And that was in Panama City where just a block away there was running water and where we can go to Target and buy all of the water that we want to. But this is in the middle of nowhere. There's no Target in Walmart. It's hot and dry, and they're thirsty, and it's desperate, and it's dangerous. But then finally, they see water up in the distance. Their tongues are sticking to the roof of their mouth, but they see water up in the distance. They get their hopes up, and they get there, but, but it's the hope that kills you. Because when they get there, the water is undrinkable. It's not just that the water doesn't taste good, it's, it's undrinkable. It's not just that they prefer spring water and that this is tap water. Like, this is bitter, poisonous water. This is not, like, this water wouldn't just keep them from dying, it would make them die faster. So, can you imagine the bitter disappointment? the shattered expectations, the letdown. Do you see what God is doing? He's bringing, to, he's bringing them to the place where it's not obvious at all that he's for them or with them. He's bringing them to the place where the evidence seems to point in the opposite direction. He, he brings them straight to the place of need, of lack, of desperation, where they will have to walk by faith and not by sight. He brings them straight to the place where they will feel the tension between God's promises on the one hand and their experience on the other. God had promised them that he's good, that he's with them, that he's for them, that he's got them. That's what God says, and he's demonstrated it over and over in the past. That's on the one hand, but then their circumstances are telling them something very different, that he's absent, that he's not in control. Maybe that he's incompetent, that he's not who he says he is. God brings them to the place where they feel ripped apart in the tension between those two realities, where they have to decide who to listen to. Will they listen to and remember all that God has said and all that he's done? Or will they listen to the message of their circumstances? Will they listen to the story of God's faithfulness in the past? Or will they listen to the story of their circumstances in the present? Reminds me of a, 
a quote out of C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, where one demon writing to another demon, and he says this. He says, our cause, meaning our, our intent to pull this disciple away from God, our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, to do God's will, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished. And he asks why he's been forsaken, and he still obeys. Is that how Israel will respond? Will they look around here in the desert at a universe where it looks like every trace of God seems to have vanished, and will they still obey? Will they still trust? Do they still believe that God is with them and for them? Well, how do they respond? Verse 24 And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? Man, this is making me thirsty. Sorry. Um, Notice notice this question that they ask. This is not a simple, straightforward expression of their needs. They're not just articulating, I'm thirsty. God would have welcomed that. He would have welcomed the simple, straightforward, desperate, God, help us We're thirsty, but that's not what this is. No, we're told that this is grumbling. That has rebellion mixed all up in it. This is they're not just simply articulating their need. They're saying, Moses, what shall we drink, you idiot? You brought us all the way out here and you didn't plan for this? This is, more, this is not really a question, you see. It's more an accusation. It's a statement. You're incompetent. You didn't think this through, you buffoon, and now we're doubting you and the God that you represent that you're up to the task. They're not just saying, I'm thirsty. They're saying, I'm thirsty, and that means that God's either not powerful enough or he doesn't care enough to solve this problem. I'm thirsty, and my lack of water necessarily implies God's lack of ability to take care of me. That's what they're saying. Can you recognize that tendency, though, in your own heart? Do you see yourself reflected here? Because we're just like this. We can move quicker than the speed of light from recognizing something that we think that we lack or a need that we think that we have in life and then interpret that as a lack in God's character, a lack in His love, a lack in His ability, or a lack in His goodness. How quickly do we move from recognizing a need to thinking that that is some kind of deficiency in God and His plan for us? Is there an area in your life, maybe right now, this morning, where God might be calling you to see and to repent of a grumbling heart? Could it be that there's a place in your life right now that reminds you of Mara? You thought the journey would look different. You thought it would be better. You expected that following Jesus would look different than this, but instead it's bitterly disappointing. What if God is the one that's bringing you here to that place where you could either get cynical and angry and bitter and disillusioned, 
or you could keep trusting that nothing about God has changed, even when everything about your life has changed. What if God tests us not to find out if we're strong enough, but to find out if we know that we're not strong enough? What if God tests us to bring to the surface other allegiances, other loyalties and loves that we're, my, that we're trusting in more, that we wouldn't even know were there unless a trial exposed them? You know, if that's what God is doing in a test, in a trial, when our faith is tested, it means that through it all, what is he doing? He's drawing us closer to himself. He's letting us see ourselves as we really are, and he's letting us see him as he really is, as the one who never changes, as the one who never leaves, as the one who is always enough. Deuteronomy 8, 16 says that God tests you to do good to you in the end. Sometimes testing feels like God's against you. But here he's saying he tests you to do good to you, to bring you to the end of yourself and your resources so that you can see in new and fresh ways that God is so much bigger than you ever thought that he was. And how does God do good to Israel here? Notice that Israel, they fail the test, don't they? They fall flat on their face. They fail and they grumble and complain. And how does God respond? He delivers them. And he provides for them as if they had passed the test. God shows Moses a log. It could be translated a tree. And Moses throws it into this bitter water, and it turns the bitter water sweet. Do you see what God is showing us here? That what was life-threatening now becomes life-giving. God changes the very source of their bitterness into a source of life and joy and rest. He's saying, you can trust me. Because no disappointment or grief or trial is safe from my redeeming, transforming power. The very thing that you think is killing you right now, I can change it into a source of blessing in life. That no source of grief or bitterness is safe from the transforming power of God. And then notice this, Notice, that, notice how the episode ends. It ends with Israel camped out in this desert oasis, this place called Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. That's how this episode ends. And he's saying to them, again, you can trust me. You can trust me when you're following me that the place of bitterness is never the last stop. It's never the end of the story. Even though you even though you don't know what's ahead, even though you can't see it or imagine it, I am bringing you to the place where you will be revived, where you will find rest and joy. I will do good to you in the end. The bitterness is never the end of the story, he's saying. So the test that God gives, it, it reveals, it uncovers, it, un, it, it exposes Israel It exposes us, doesn't it? Exposes the grumbling in our own hearts, our own unbelief, and how quick we are to doubt God's promises when we enter into difficulty. 
But notice that this test, it also reveals, it also exposes, it brings to light God's faithfulness, His power, His steadfastness in the midst of trials, that He can change what is bitter and broken into something that is beautiful and life-giving. And those bitter and broken places are never the final destination, never the end of the story. So that's the first point, the longest point, the test that God gives. But, I, but that's not all that's going on here. I want you to see, lastly, I want you to see here the shadow, the preview, not only of the test that God gives, but the test that God takes, the test that God takes. This passage is... It not only tells us about the test that God gives, but it looks forward to. It leans towards and it anticipates a day when God will take the test himself, the test that we fail miserably. And here's what I mean by that. Look at verse 26. Israel has just failed the test miserably here at Marah. And right after responding to their failure, With grace and mercy, what does God say to them? Verse 26, he says, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Here's what's incredible about that verse. Up till now, in the story of Exodus, the salvation, the deliverance that God has promised to Israel, it's been purely unconditional. It's simply been announced. God says, I'm doing this. I am Yahweh, your God, and you are my people, and I'm bringing you out. (laughs) It's unconditional. It's announced. He just says, I'm doing this. It doesn't start with the word if. Actually, the only conditional statements so far in the book of Exodus have been directed at Pharaoh, and they're more like threats. When God says, if you refuse to let my people go, I will kill your firstborn son. If you refuse to let them go, I will bring these plagues on you. But listen to what God is saying here. If you trust me and obey perfectly, I will will not treat you like I did the Egyptians. And listen to this, y'all. He's saying this before the dust has even settled from their failure to obey and to trust. I mean, we're not even three sentences into the wilderness yet before they're complaining and grumbling. It's not going well. Like, the starting gun has just fired for their journey towards a promised land, and they've already tripped and fallen on their face. And now God's saying, if you don't ever do that again, if you trust me perfectly like you just demonstrated that you can't, and if you listen to me perfectly like you just demonstrated that you won't, then I will not destroy you. What's God doing here? Do you feel the tension there? Here's the question. Is their deliverance unconditional or is it conditional? Is the salvation that God promised to Israel, 
Is it unconditional? Is it based on His goodness and His power and His mercy and His promises? Or is it conditional? Is it based on their obedience? Does God save unconditionally because He's that good? Or does He save conditionally if they're going to be that good? Do you feel the tension there? That's the tension here. And brothers and sisters, the, the tension only gets ratcheted up the more, we get, the more we go through the book of Exodus. That tension only gets heightened the more that we go through the whole story of the Old Testament. Verse 26, is it good news or is it bad news? <laughs> it's bad news because Israel actually never passed this test, and they're not going to. They don't pass the test here in the wilderness. They don't trust and obey. And they're not going to pass the test in the promised land where life gets easier. They're not going to trust and obey. And you and I, we've never passed this test either. For five whole minutes in your life, can you ever say that you have diligently listened to the voice of the Lord your God? For five whole minutes in your whole life, can you say that you have only and ever only wanted to do what is right in His eyes and not your own? For five whole minutes in your life, can you say that you have kept all of His statutes? Verse 26 is not good news if it only has in view the test that God gives because we can't pass that test. But verse 26 is good news if we see here the shadow of someone else who can pass it for us. If we see here the shadow of someone who will meet the conditions in our place. Someone who can resolve this tension between God's salvation being conditional and, and unconditional. Verse 26 is good news if it's not just telling us about the test that God gives and that we fail. But it's good news if it's leaning forward towards that day when God will come to take the test himself. He says here that you must diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God. And he's staring in the eyes the people that he knows can't do that. And so what is the good news of the gospel? The good news of the gospel is that the voice of the Lord God himself, the very word of God, became incarnate to come and be tested himself. That we have failed to listen diligently to his voice, and so the word of God himself became man to come and to obey and to be faithful where we have failed, that Jesus did all that was right in the eyes of the Father, not just for five straight minutes, but for his whole life. He kept all of God's commandments with joy and delight. He walked in God's ways, and he passed the test. He went into the wilderness for 40 days, and he was more thirsty and hungry and desperate than you or I can ever imagine, and there he passed the test where you and I, where the people of Israel, failed. And what did that test reveal? What did it uncover about him? 
that he's purely righteous and beautiful and good and full of steadfast love and faithfulness. But he came to give all of that to the people that fail miserably. He came because he heard and he listened to these words from the Father. If you will diligently listen to the voice of your Father and do all that is right in my eyes, if you will give ear to my commandments and live a lifetime of keeping all of my statutes, then I will put all of the diseases on you that I should have put on them because you are their Messiah and you are their healer. He is the one who has come to pass the test that we fail. And we follow Jesus in this, in this world united to the one who has passed the test for us, united to the one who is our healer, because with his wounds we are healed. And we follow Jesus in this world, even through those places that look and feel like Mara, hearing this invitation from God. It's some of the last words from the Bible in Revelation 22. It's the words that Jesus wants you to hear in those places where you're dry and desperate and weak. For you to hear, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. You can trust a God like that as we follow him through the wilderness to the promised land. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for showing us yourself. We could not bear the weight, the crushing weight of being exposed and and being brought out into the light and shown who we really are unless you show us at the exact same time your sufficiency, your goodness, unless we hear the good news that you are steadfastly committed to those who fail that test. Because you have passed the test for us. You unite us to your righteousness and you are the one that is bringing us all the way home. Keeping our souls alive on the eternal water of life given to us by your wounds, by your cross. Oh Lord, keep making those bitter places in our life sweet because of the redemption that is found in Christ Jesus. The one who gave his life for us and who was leading us all the way home. And we pray this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.